Good morning. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing in our sermon series. We're going to be in Romans uh, chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. But before we do, let me pray for us, and then we will jump in together. God, we thank you for the opportunity to spend time in your word. Uh, we thank you for what it teaches us about who we are in light of who you are and what you've done for us and what it means for us. Uh, we pray that you would be our teacher You'd be the one that takes uh, the eternal truth of your word and applies it to our hearts and our minds, that you would illuminate us uh, this morning as we spend time in your word, and that you would show us uh, the glory of what you have for us and what it means for us, uh, that we are your beloved children in Jesus. And so we thank you for this. We pray that you would just lead and guide us in all truth, and we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we begin uh, this morning, uh, I was remembering just... Uh, a conversation that, uh, just to be frank, was was one of the more difficult conversations I've ever had uh, in my time as a pastor. And this is probably one of the first years. I think it was probably in the first year of being a pastor in uh, in our church here. Uh, at the time, um, there was a large group uh, of gentlemen from a, a drug and alcohol program that had come and were being part of our church. And so we had a large group at the time. Uh, from Jericho House up in Cleveland, a ministry that we love and have been a part of for a long time. But as those guys came in uh, to the church, uh, there was a gentleman in our church at the time that came to me and uh, started to tell me how worried he was uh, about the church and, and kind of where we were going and, and what it looked like. And uh, his, his reasoning was uh, that he was worried that uh, kind of the image of our church that suddenly we had a large population of those battling addictions in our church and and they didn't look quite like the other people that were here and some of the things that he said just, just really uh, gave me pause and bothered me but then uh, I'll never remember, never forget uh, that he said to me we, we really need to recruit good people we need to recruit good people here in our church and and I said well what do you mean by that? And, and what exactly does that look like? And, and then he started to unfold for me what, what that would look like. And essentially it was people that look like him. <laughs> and it was, we need to have certain families and certain people that looked in a certain way. And, and there were some really, uh, hard conversations from, that came from that. There were also some really good conversations that came from that. But in that moment at that time and, and hearing him articulate it in that way, it was so devastating to me because this was clearly a gospel issue. Uh, a huge misunderstanding of our sinfulness. And what I mean by our, I mean all people. Uh, this gentleman's and mine and yours and all of us, our sinfulness and our desperate need for God's grace and what he's done for us. And that's true of every single one of us, no matter our background or where we came from or what we look like or what we're struggling with. The same is true for every single one of us. And as he was articulating to me, he seemed to have missed a big section of that. And it's the very thing that as we've been looking at the first couple chapters of Romans that Paul's reminding us of, of every single one of us, that we are sinners and that we desperately need God's grace in our life. And Paul's helping us to see the, the fullness of that and what that means that we are sinful because in seeing that we then see the glory of the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And, uh, what we're going to think about as we consider who we are, and this is just the way we're going to look at this beginning of chapter three is, is what does it say about who we are, what we deserve and how God answers that. And so who we are, what we deserve and then how 
God answers that. And, and as we do, there's so many things that pervade into our culture today, much like that gentleman was saying to me those many years ago, that are still so uh, right in our face that cause so many issues. And what we're going to look at today speaks directly to that and how we address that today. And so with that said, let's jump in to Romans chapter 3. And let's just ask that first question of what is Paul saying about who we are? And what he's been saying and what he's leading up to and what he's going to bring to a a very clear and dramatic conclusion in verse 20 here is that we're all sinners, that we're all in desperate need of God's grace in our life, every single one of us. And so when I'm asking this question of who are we is what he's telling us here. And the answer is simply that we are sinners. I, I want to remind you that that's not all that we are. Although that is true of each and every one of us, and we are in need, that when you come to faith in Jesus, that you are a beloved child of God that is loved and accepted because of what Christ has done for you. And you're invited into his family, and you're now part of his family. Even if you're you're not there, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are made in God's image. You are an image bearer of the creator of the universe. And so I don't want us to be skewed and say that we are only sinners, although we are, and it's important for us to consider that. We're much more than that. But for the sake of this passage and where he's driving, it's important that we see our sinfulness to understand everything else that he's saying in Romans. And so with that said, look at what he says here right at the beginning of chapter three. He says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much In every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So let me just give you background. If you if you didn't listen last week or you haven't been reading through Romans with us, that may seem like a a strange statement that he just jumps into. But what he's building on is the argument that he ended with at the end of chapter two, where he talks about that not all Jews are Jews. And and, uh, he he says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is not a matter of the heart, but by the spirit. And and he's bringing us to this understanding that those that are in a right relationship with God is because of their faith in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not an outward thing. It's not being really religious. It's not growing up in the church that saves you. It's not uh, your works and, and, and doing a whole bunch of religious activities, but is a heart change that happens through the person of the Holy Spirit as he comes into your life and begins to open your eyes to see Jesus and you're saved by faith and what God has done in Christ. And, and that's the way it works. And it's the only way that we can be made righteous, which is Paul is driving towards all the way through here in Romans. It's not your religious activity. Now, it would have been very hard for his audience to hear because they saw the Jews as God's chosen people, which they were. They were God's chosen people and how he was going to show the world what he was like. And he did choose uh, Israel to represent uh, what he is like to the world. And so it would be very hard for them in light of those promises to hear Paul then say some Jews are not really Jews that they haven't really come to this saving relationship with God. And so as he starts to unfold that, he's going to ask the question, well, then what advantage is it to even being a Jew? And he says, well, much in every way. They had God's word and God spoke to them and they've seen this revelation of, of who he is. But what he's reminding them of is that the uh, the amount of this revelation uh, that they have, that they, yes, that they had more um God's direct revelation to him doesn't save them. That we're saved through a work 
of the Holy Spirit in us and points us to Jesus. And it's by grace through faith that we're saved. And it's not by being all in these religious activities and these things that we often think is the case. And so Paul's bringing that out here. It's not dependent on the amount of revelation they have. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. And it doesn't save you just by being aware of those things or hearing God's word. And so that would have been very difficult for many to hear. But what Paul's saying is is nothing different than, say, John the Baptist said. John the Baptist, the forerunner who comes right before Jesus, the beginning of the Gospels, and he starts to preach and he starts to call people to repentance. And, and he will tell them over and over, you're not saved by being Jewish. You're not saved by your heritage. You need to repent and put your faith and trust in God and what he's doing. And he's and he's showing them that Jesus will come and say the same thing. They'll have very hard words for the religious leaders that think they're saved by being Jewish. They'll say, you profess me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And so he'll say these things over and over and continue to point that it's it's much more than just outward physical things that you do. It's much more than just being part of a certain nation or a certain place. And here Paul's saying it again, it's by faith in what God has done and that is the only way that we're saved. But Paul is understanding his audience is going to struggle with this, right? If God chose these people and he's working through them and now all of a sudden Paul steps up and he's reminding them that not all of them are part of Israel. Not all of them are true Jews in the sense of they're in a saving relationship with the God of the universe. And so he anticipates that they're going to have a problem with that. Is God unfaithful? If he made a promise to these people, and then some of them, Paul is now saying, are not actually God's people, then is God unfaithful to his promises to the Jews? And Paul's answer is no, they're sinners. Just like every single one of us is sinners. And God is right to judge them just as he is right to judge us or any one of us because we're all sinners. And so follow the logic of what he's saying here. The Jews of the day that would not be in a saving relationship, that have misunderstood what God is doing and who he is and what his character is like. And by the way, I would say it's the same thing of someone who claims to be a Christian today. They say, no, I'm a Christian and I grew up in the church and, and my dad was a pastor or my uncle or whatever. And I've been in this church and I hear this kind of story often. But yet they believe that their worth before God can be earned. I'm saved. I'm a Christian or in this case, I'm a Jew because I'm a pretty good person. And I, I go to temple or I, I go to the church every so often and I do all these works. And so therefore I am and I'm good with God. And what Paul's saying is, is if if you see that you don't understand if that's the way you're operating, that it's by your works and you're doing and you can do enough to do it. You don't understand who God is and what it means to be right with him. You can't do it. And God's judging you in your rebellion is not God being unfaithful. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. God is being faithful to his character. And that's what he's getting at here as he begins to unfold with them. When they're, he's anticipating the question, what is God unfaithful? Because if some of these Jews are not Jews, and he says, by no means, God is completely just to judge. 
And so he'll, he'll then, uh, quote from Psalm 51 if you look at verse 4, right? So look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does that, their faithful, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And he quotes here from Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so Psalm 51 is David confessing his sin and, and crying out to God in the midst of being caught in adultery with Bathsheba and he's crying out to God. And I think uh, Paul very uh, particularly uses this text and quotes it in this way to point to us that here's David, who is a Jew, and not only is he a Jew, he's God's chosen man to be king. He's the king at the time. And David is confessing and saying he deserves to be judged for his sin, that he too is a sinner. And so Paul is bringing us to show us this, that God is just to judge any and all people, whether Jewish or Gentile, wherever they are, that we're all guilty before him because every single one of us is a sinner and in need of God's grace. And so he's bringing us to this point. And so the first question here of who we are, apart from God's grace in our life and uh, even with God's grace in our life, we are still sinners, but we are saved by grace. And so every single one of us is a sinner in desperate need. But I want us to think about this for just a second because there's some really profound implication that speaks to some very uh, important problems we see in our culture today. That we are all sinners and there's kind of a egalitarianism of us being under sin, every single one of us. In fact, if you look at verse 9, as he gets down to the end of this, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. He says, we're all the same. And I want you to remember what all Paul has just said here. He's just talked about all this list of sins and all these things and why we're accountable and all the the evil that is in the world and that what we do. And then he gets here and he says, are we any better? And he says, no, we're all the same. We're all sinners in the same way. And you hear that. And I want you to think about how it speaks to a terrifying problem in our culture that is a direct affront to the gospel. Oftentimes we get discipled by our culture. It makes its way into the church. It makes its way into uh, people who are saying they're believers and following God. And and then we're being discipled by what the culture says. And oftentimes it's the direct opposite of what scripture says. And one of those things right now, and I see it everywhere. See it socially and politically. You see it every day. uh, Social media, the news, you see it all over. And it's this idea that it's us versus them. We've been so divided in our country that it's if, if you're on this team and you believe these things, then you're the good guys and them, whoever them is, the people who disagree with you are the bad guys. And you see it almost everywhere. And if that's not bad enough, because that's directly opposite of the gospel in the sense of uh, we are all sinners and we're all in desperate need of God's grace. But then we've taken another step further and we've decided that the way in which we should operate in this us versus them is we should ostracize. We should have nothing to do with. We should no longer talk to or engage with the them, the people we disagree with. I see it all the time. I was actually working on this sermon on Wednesday and I stopped to have lunch and I read an article uh, about a sports team. 
professional sports team owner is disagreeing with some of the things the league has decided to do to speak to racism. Doesn't like the way in which they're doing it and the way and so is voicing uh, displeasure with the way the league is doing it. Nothing wrong with them disagreeing, nothing wrong with them both giving their sides and talking about it. But then as I read on in the article, one of the players that played for this owner said, I've eaten with this person, I've been in their home, I've spent time with them, and I had no idea that they believed the way they did. And if I did, if I knew they believed this way, I would have never had a meal with them. I would have never come in their home. And I read that and thought, really? Is that where we are? That we so are divided into us versus them and these people are so bad and they're the the good people and they're the bad people that I'm not even going to spend time with them. I'm not even going to listen or engage, not to share a meal. And as, as followers of Jesus, we don't have that luxury. If we have our theology rooted and grounded in what God tells us in Scripture is that we're all sinful We're all broken. We're all in need. And the gospel shows us that we're no better. Just as Paul says here in verse 9, are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, no, none is righteous. No, not one. And that's the truth for all of us. Every single one of us. And there's implications of this when we see this is that we don't deserve God's grace, but God has graciously come to us and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we too are to interact with people in the same way. And so this thing in our culture of us versus them and ostracize people and not to not talk to them or go to them or, or step out and try to bridge those gaps is so directly opposed to the gospel that we proclaim. And so the first thing here is that we're sinners in desperate need. But the second thing in this whole section that Paul's building us, building to and showing us is that not only are we sinners, but we deserve God's wrath. We deserve his judgment that apart from what God has done for us in Jesus and clinging to him by grace through faith, we deserve God's judgment. That nothing we can do can ever be enough to bridge that gap. And so he begins the section In chapter 1, in verse 18, as he starts to kind of unfold this this whole section about how we are all lost, and we are all sinful, and we are all in need. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he says, We all deserve God's wrath. Every single one of us. And it sets off this whole section. Chapter 2, he'll come back to the idea and he'll say, don't you know God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But if you continue to to take advantage of God's grace and mercy to you and you don't repent and you continue to run from him, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Your sin demands that it will be dealt with. And so he'll say this over and over and he keeps coming back to it. And then he gets to here in chapter 3. <clears throat> in verse 8, is they try to get away from this idea that we're accountable to God, and they kind of try to flip the Paul's anticipating arguments, the rhetorical question here in verses uh, 4 down to 8. And they're trying to say, no, 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 we're not really accountable to God. And he's saying, yes, yes, we are. 
and it's God's world, and he can judge, and he gets down to the end of verse 8, and he says their condemnation is just. Those that are pushing away from God and continuing to rebel, that their condemnation is just. And so he said this over and over. And it's a serious charge that we are all sinners, but that we all deserve God's judgment and his wrath. And so I want us just to think about that for just a second. Our sinfulness is so ingrained and so in us that we believe we're the center of the world. And as such, it leads us in our sin, instead of confess our sin and repent, it leads us to accuse God. We become so man-centered, so sinful in the sense of it's all about me, that we will turn and accuse God. And you see that happening here. They're going to ask the question, well, if... uh Verse five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I'm speaking in human terms by no means. And what he's saying is people will try to flip the script and take their sin and say, I'm not really accountable and God should let this slide and try to do away with it. And that's what's happening here. Maybe think of an interview I saw years ago. Uh, with the actor Robert De Niro. And somebody asked De Niro, uh, if there's a God and you stand before him one day, what would you want to ask him? And his answer was uh, striking to me. He said, when I stand before God, if, if he exists and he's there, he's going to have a lot of explaining to do. And what he does is exactly what Paul's talking about here, kind of flipping Our accountability, us being accountable to God and seeking to make God accountable to us, which is the heart of our rebellious sinfulness, that I'm the center of the world and God answers to me rather than sin being rebellion against God in the world he created and we answer to him, which is exactly what Paul's saying here. And so when we come to faith, we must admit that we can't do it. There's a radical, uh, radical humbling To say that I can't do this and that I am accountable to God and I can never do enough to be brought into this right relationship with him. This conviction of the Holy Spirit that points me to Jesus and my great need. But left to ourselves, apart from God's grace in our life, we will continue to make it all about me and I will seek to make God accountable to me and not the other way around, which is what's happening here. It's what he's laying out here when he gives us just this whole list in verses 10 and following that no one is righteous. No one understands God. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throats are in an open grave. And he goes on and on. And he's saying apart from the the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life, we will continue to make it all about us. And we see that still today and the objection that he says here, right? They're, they're trying to say, well, we're not accountable to God. And the reason we're not accountable is God made us. And yes, we've rebelled. But in our rebellion and us being sinners, God gets the glory and he's righteous. And so he would be right not to judge us. And it's very similar to what I hear people say today as they try to sweep away the wrath and the judgment of God. And it happens all the time. We ignore what the Bible says when it comes to God's wrath. Now, God's wrath is his holy, righteous anger against all sin. And people today say, well, God's loving 
and he's merciful and he's kind. And so he's not actually going to judge anyone. Hell's not actually a real thing. God's not going to do that. And when we go down that road and we start to do that, we're taking and putting ourselves over God. Instead of us being accountable to God, we're seeking to make God accountable to us. But then we're also missing the very character of God. We're misunderstanding what the Bible teaches us about who God is. And so what they're saying here is is what I often hear people say today when they try to push away the wrath of God and God's judgment. Here they say, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do and why not do evil that good may come? As people slanderously charge us with saying, but then Paul says, no, if you go down that road, your condemnation is just. And it's very similar to what he's going to come back in chapter six when they he he talks about people uh, embracing this idea. Well, we should just continue to sin that grace may abound. The more we sin, the more God's grace is shown. And so it's all great. And we should just continue to do that. God's going to be all grace and mercy and love. But here's the problem. We do that. We miss the very character of God. Although God is perfect justice, or perfect mercy, and perfect love, and perfect grace, and he's faithful, and he's long-suffering, and he's kind, he's also perfect justice. If God doesn't deal with sin, then he ceases to be God. He's no longer perfect in every way. God's character is he's perfect in every way, and that includes being just. And so if God doesn't judge sin... And he doesn't deal with it. He is no longer God. And so oftentimes I will hear people ask this question. Why not just forgive everyone? Why did Jesus have to die? Why does God have hell? Why would he put people there? Why would he do this? And they ask all these questions that are all good questions to wrestle with and understand why you believe what you believe. But if God doesn't deal with sin and there is no justice, then God is not perfect. His character is not perfect in every way and he ceases to be God. And if he doesn't deal with it, then uh, as Paul is saying here, he's, he's not just. But look at what he says. Their condemnation is just. God's perfect character. He is right to judge sin. And we are all sinners. And so when we ask the question of who we are in our rebellion to God, we are all sinners. What do we deserve? We all deserve the wrath of God. Every single one of us. And so it's a serious thing that Paul's leveling here. But he's setting up these first three and a half chapters to get us to this point to show us that every single one of us is accountable before God. Every single one of us deserves God's wrath. Not a single one of anyone will ever do enough. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether you grew up in the church or not, that we're all accountable. And he's showing us every bit of that. But then the last thing I want us to consider is what does God do with all that? And it comes back to the summary statement of the book of Romans. And we're going to jump right fully into this next week when we pick up in verse 21. 
But it's what we said the very first week, the summary statement of Romans is when Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And what he's saying is none of us can ever do enough. We are all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. We are all held accountable before him. But yet God is so gracious and so merciful and so loving that he has made a way that we can be right with him. And on the cross, when we come to what God did for us in Jesus, and remember, we've been saying this each week, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us, not what we try to earn, not a list of rules that we try to put into effect that we can be saved, but it's what God has done for us. And the good news of what he's done And what we see in what he's done in Jesus is not only his glorious mercy and grace, but we also see that God is just. He allows Jesus to take the place of all those that would put their faith in him. And in doing so, Jesus takes the sin of every single one that puts his faith in him. And he takes it upon himself and he pays for it. So that God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. Our sin is dealt with in Jesus. It is not swept under the rug. When people ask the question, why did Jesus have to come and die so that God is just? So that he could welcome us back as his beloved children despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion. And so in doing so, Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the glory of the gospel comes when we see this. But I want to end here, and this is so important. And we spend a lot of time on saying that we're really sinful and we deserve God's wrath. And those are two things we don't really like to hear. We don't like to dwell on that. We don't like to spend a lot of time, the majority of a sermon, to hear that we're all sinful and we deserve God's wrath. But when we see the depths of our sin, we see the offense against a holy, perfect, righteous God. When we see that that is what we deserve, it is there that we then begin to see the depths of God's glory and grace to us. That even though we deserve this, he loves us so much that he's come to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And at the bottom of this, I want you just to think about what this practically does for every single one of us when we truly grasp this and understand and think about what is true of us and our sinfulness and what we deserve And it's simply this, is that when we start to see that I'm not saved by being a pretty good person, right? No, not one is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. In and of ourselves, we will never do that. And when I begin to see that, then I begin to see that I am saved completely and totally by grace. And this whole thing of the us versus them, and these are the good people, and these are the bad people, goes away. We're all in desperate need of God's grace. And the only way is through what Jesus has done for us and nothing else. And so we're leveled. And it takes us to a place of there's no us versus them. There's only us. There's only us in need of grace. And if you've understood the grace of God in your life, then we get the opportunity to spread that to everyone else who also needs God's grace. And so it's a wonderful truth that brings light into where our world is right now because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. 
We thank you that despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite our arrogance, that you love us and you pursue us. Give us eyes to see each and every person in front of us as in need of your gospel, that we would be agents of your grace, that we would pursue people the way that you have pursued us, and that we love each person in the way that you've loved us for your glory and our good. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.